This is Backstory. I'm Brian Bellow. Chinese President Xi Jinping arrived for his recent state visit with some contentious topics on the docket. It's his first as China's leader and comes amid growing tension over cyber hacking and military moves in the South China Sea. Tensions between the world's two biggest economies are nothing new. Back in the early 19th century, trouble centered on the American role in smuggling drugs to China. You could say it ripped the fabric of Chinese society. Today on Backstory, the history of U.S.-China relations, from secret Cold War diplomacy in the 1970s to conjoined twins who challenged America's black-and-white notions of race in the 1830s. The Virginia assemblymen ultimately decided they were slaves, and they said, we're Chinese, we're not some menial piece of property. Coming up on Backstory, the tumultuous history of U.S.-Chinese relations. Don't go away. Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guys. Welcome to the show. I'm Brian Bellow, and I'm here with Peter Onuf. Hey, Brian. And Ed Ayers is with us. Hey, guys. In 1880, Americans learned how the United States collapsed, at least in the pages of one novel, Last Days of the Republic. So the book says that it is actually for readers on the, in the 20th century who want to know how the American Republic fell in the 19th century. This is Gordon Chang, a historian at Stanford University. He says that the book's author, Pearton Dooner, pinned the country's fictional downfall on one group of people, the Chinese. Like all good propaganda, Dooner started with some actual facts. Many Chinese immigrants had indeed begun arriving on U.S. shores in the 1840s and 1850s. But he then presented an apocalyptic vision of what this influx of Chinese people meant for the country. In order to insert themselves into American life, they become citizens by the hundreds of thousands. They become voting members of the republic and use this not to strengthen the republic, but to gather power for themselves, first on the West Coast and then these hundreds of thousands, if not now millions of Chinese who are in the country, that they now rise up to become soldiers. In the ensuing chaos, Dunner described these Chinese invaders waging war against upstanding Anglo-Americans. And there are these massive slaughters and military suppressions of those Americans who rise up to try to stop this invasion. By the end of the 1880s, Duna wrote, the conquerors had hoisted the flag of the imperial dragon of China over the nation's capital. The last sentence of the last days of the Republic reads, thus passed away the glory of the Union of States at the dawn of the 20th century. Now, clearly, Dooner was extreme in his racial views, but Last Days of the Republic is just one example of yellow peril literature, which flourished in the late 19th century. This yellow para genre has certain things in common. So the Chinese are racialized in in these various dimensions. Biologically, they are presented as sort of a different sort of species in that the Chinese are able to survive and thrive on rice, that they're sort of homogenous, 
whereas decent Americans are factious and individualistic and moral. So this literature does both a sort of characterization of the Chinese, but also a commentary on whites or Americans and how they have to wake up to this threat. That fictional message had real-world consequences. These Yellow Peril books fed the nativist backlash against Chinese immigrants. Politicians eventually passed laws restricting Chinese immigration to the United States. And though the overt racism of Yellow Peril literature is a thing of the past, Chang says that those underlying attitudes have not entirely disappeared. $300 billion. That's an estimate of how much American businesses lose in intellectual property theft every year. Most of it blamed on the Chinese. I think you have to do something to rein in China today. They're making it absolutely impossible for the United States to compete. Good news for China on Monday, but bad news for us. The country's economy power is likely to surpass the United States in less than two decades, meaning Asia could overtake North America. There is a sense today, I think, that China imperils the republic. Now, there's no doubt that China is a powerful and significant and growing factor in the world. But in my view, the kind of response that many have to this taps into or draws from or is unconsciously inspired by some of these longstanding fears and worries. President Obama hosted a state dinner for Chinese President Xi Jinping last month. News commentators highlighted mounting tensions over China's cyber attacks and military maneuvers in the South China Sea. But others noted that Xi's presence at the White House indicated that the world's two biggest economies have much to gain by cooperating in economics and trade. Chang noted this more benign view of China also has a very long history in America. So today on the show, we're going to untangle those twin strands in the history of U.S.-Chinese relations. We've got stories of Chinese conjoined twins navigating the shifting racial politics of 19th century America and of the secret diplomacy that paved the way for President Nixon's historic trip to Beijing in 1972. We'll also try some mouth-watering cuisine that's a direct descendant of 19th century laws restricting Chinese immigration. But first... We're going to dive into the contentious history of trade between China and the United States. In the 18th century, luxury goods like Chinese porcelain and silk could be found in homes around the 13 colonies. Chinese tea even played a starring role in the American Revolution. The very tea that was dumped into Boston Harbor uh, in the 1770s was tea from China, uh, brought by the British East India Company. This is historian John Hadid. He says trade with China became even more important after the revolution. That's why a group of Yankee merchants set sail for the port of Canton in 1784. Now, the Chinese were more than happy to sell tea and porcelain, but they weren't interested in buying anything from the Americans. British traders had run into the same problem. When the emperor gave his famous response to King George III saying, we don't, you don't have anything that we want, he was in fact incorrect. It turns out that the world did have products that the Chinese wanted to buy. Actually, just one product, opium. Even though this highly addictive drug was illegal in China, 
The British had been smuggling opium in from India since the early 1700s. American merchants wanted in on the action, so they found their own source of opium in Turkey and started smuggling it into China in the 1820s. It brought devastation to Chinese society. You could say it ripped the fabric of Chinese society because so many people who might otherwise have had productive lives as fathers or as workers of some sort were instead spending their time and spending their money not on nutrition, not on raising their families. They were instead wasting their money and their time servicing their opium addictions. So there are millions of people involved, both users and then the people who depended on users. Now, there were also missionaries stationed in Canton who were outraged by the opium trade. And you can understand yeah. why they were trying to sell the gospel to the Chinese and having a pretty tough time doing so. Because the Chinese, the missionaries said, associated Western civilization with the Bible and with opium. So uh, play it out. Tell us what happens in this uh, conflict uh, among traders and missionaries and, and what the long-term impact is on China itself. Now, I should say here first that China was closed at this time mm -hmm. in its history. By closed, I mean that a European or American ship could not sail to China and weigh anchor at any Chinese port. You could go to one and only one place, and that was Canton, China. And this was how China tried to maintain control over its foreign trade and any ideas that foreigners might bring. Well, how did it all resolve? The opium crisis grew worse and worse, and something had to be done. Now, this is, well, there had been little crackdowns previously, but none of them had been successful. And foreigners usually laughed at them and said, well, the status quo will return shortly. And they were always right. This time, though, China meant business. In 1839, the Chinese cracked down on British and American opium smugglers, confiscating and destroying millions of dollars worth of drugs. Chinese officials also set up a blockade of Canton so no ships could enter or leave the harbor. The lucrative China trade came to a halt. China said if the foreigners promised to stop selling opium, legal foreign trade could resume. The Americans quickly agreed. The British were another story, however, and they sent word to Parliament and to the Queen that injustices had happened in China and England responded by sending state-of-the-art warships. And we know what's coming. The Opium War is what's coming. Uh, this force, when it arrived, had its way with Chinese forces. England won the war, and a treaty was signed called the Treaty of Nanking, and the Treaty of Nanking opened up China to British trade. So, John, uh, technically, uh, opium is still illegal, and this is an illegal trade, isn't it? Yes, the opium trade would continue as usual, but now China had lost the will and the resolve mm. to try to block it. So opium trading becomes much more common after the opium war than before. Right. And our and righteous Americans come back and rejoin the trade? They did. And they resumed opium trading. China has stopped cracking down on opium and yes. is now looking the other way. China is weakened at this point. 
the people who are promoting morality, of course, uh, are the missionaries. We've left them uh, to the side for quite a while now. Uh, they were cheering on that anti-opium initiative, but it failed. So how does this play out? The missionaries found themselves in an interesting position. They abhorred the traders, always did, because the traders brought opium. They also were angry at the Chinese government for remaining closed, and they desperately wanted to, for China mm-hmm. to open up to, to missionary activity. So their view on the opium war was that it was an unjust war, yet they were in favor of those British gunboats blowing China open because they wanted access to Chinese souls. So missionaries were in this strange position of being against the purpose of the opium war to protect the opium trade, but rooting for the British because they viewed the British as the hand of God, a battering ram to open up China to evangelical activity. So the bottom line is that... uh Christianity followed the opium trade, that that was the vector. That's what opened China. And uh, of course, the the missionaries wouldn't say that, but uh, they're free riding on that, uh, on the diffusion of opium and that uh, vigorous trade. Yes. Well, John, I get the impression that the opium wars uh, were a tremendously important turning point in Chinese history. The opium war really initiated a new phase in Chinese history and a sad one. It was a phase of a hundred year phase of humiliation for the Chinese Mm -hmm. during which the Qing dynasty had been knocked off its pedestal. And that means that both Chinese civilians and foreigners alike both viewed it as weak and in decay. The end of the opium war, uh, China must now put down internal rebellions that challenge the Qing dynasty's sovereignty. And foreigners see that they can bully China, that they can set up little fiefdoms, if you will, in the treaty ports and then gradually expand their advantage. So we begin the stage where China is not in control of its own territory as foreigners grow in influence. And you could say that opium... Uh, penetration into China anticipated that. How do Chinese people remember this horrible century you're describing? You know, in our um, American memory, we don't tend to think much about it. What Most memory? Americans, yeah. yeah, what memory? Now, you shift to the Chinese person. To many of them, especially those who study history, and most of them do, the Opium War... And the opium addiction crisis, it's as if these things happened yesterday. And Mm. Chinese people today still feel acutely the humiliation that began with the opium war. They still think about that today, which is why when you turned on your televisions in 2008 and you watched the Olympics, you could probably see, even if you didn't know much Chinese history, that China was saying through the Olympics and that elaborate opening ceremony, we have arrived. We are back to being the middle kingdom, the center of the world. John Haddad, professor of American studies and popular culture at Penn State University, Harrisburg, is the author of America's First Adventure in China, Trade, Treaties, Opium, and Salvation. John, uh, thanks for joining us today. That was a terrific interview. Peter, I enjoyed every minute. 
Earlier, we heard from Gordon Chang. He's a historian at Stanford University and the author of Fateful Ties, a history of America's preoccupation with China. It's time for a short break, but stay with us. When we get back, how two famous Chinese immigrants elude 19th century racial categories and reinvent themselves as white. You're listening to Backstory. We'll be right back. We're back with Backstory. I'm Peter Onuf. I'm Ed Ayers. And I'm Brian Bellow. We're reflecting on Chinese President Xi Jinping's recent visit to America with an hour on the history of U.S.-China relations. We're going to turn from America's history in China to a story of early Chinese immigrants in the U.S. In the 1830s, few Americans would ever have seen a Chinese person in the flesh, with two prominent exceptions. The headlines said it all. The Siamese twins have arrived at New York on their way to Boston. Those human anatomical wonders have again commenced to exhibit themselves about the country. They are united to each other by a ligature or band, about three and a half inches in length and eight in circumference. They have adopted the American style of dress in everything except the hair, which is three feet in length and worn by them braided in the Chinese style. They are the original Siamese twins and no humbug. In 1829, there were two brothers, conjoined twins, who were brought to the United States from the country of Siam, which we today know as Thailand. Mm -hmm. And they were placed on exhibit, and the stage name that they used was the Siamese Twins. This is historian Joe Orser. He says that the twins, named Chang and Ng, made a living traveling from town to town. Sometimes they performed acrobatics. Other times they simply sat in a parlor for an intimate chat with customers but they always displayed the band of flesh that connected them just above the waist. From the beginning, Americans had medical and philosophical questions about the conjoined twins, but much of the talk focused on their race. Though born in Siam, the twins were ethnically Chinese, and when they arrived in the U.S. in 1829, Americans didn't know what to make of them. Were they black or white, slave or free? Orser says that when the twins took their act of Virginia in 1832, state lawmakers felt compelled to debate their status. The Virginia assemblymen ultimately decided that they were slaves. They were owned by this American sea captain, Abel Coffin, who had brought them over from Siam to the United States. And this offended the twins to no end. The way that they responded to this was by turning to their Chineseness. They're from a country, Siam which had slavery, a form of slavery, in which the Chinese were exempt. And so they said, we're Chinese. We're not some menial, low-level piece of property. By the end of the 1830s, Chang and Ng had made enough money exhibiting themselves to buy some property in rural North Carolina. Orser says the twins were quite shrewd about American racial politics. They realized that North Carolinians, like Virginians, viewed the world in terms of black and white. So, Chang and Ng set out to prove their whiteness to their southern neighbors. They owned land. Um, They married uh, white sisters at a time when miscegenation, marriage between races, was prohibited. They owned, it varied from as few as 18 to as many as 30 slaves. And the twins didn't stop there. In the 1840 census, they were listed as Chang and Ng Bunker, two white brothers. They became naturalized citizens, 
a legal status that was only available to free white men at the time. Their children, all 21 of them, were also classified as white on the census. And each had a son fight for the South, for the Confederacy. The rural community accepted them. In the words of one neighbor, Chang and Ng Bunker were Southerners true and true. But outside their North Carolina hometown, the ground was shifting. Tens of thousands of Chinese immigrants began arriving in the West after the California Gold Rush of 1849. Those Chinese certainly weren't accepted by their white neighbors. And people began to write letters to editors and saying, well, golly, I heard that in San Francisco... Chinese have been prohibited from testifying in court, from enjoying any benefits of citizenship. In fact, they're being barred from citizenship. What about the twins? And so increasingly, starting in the 1850s, you have the Chinese presence in America coloring the way that uh, Americans think about Chang and Ang. By the 1870s, as the nativist backlash against Chinese immigrants intensified, the brothers' hard-won assimilation started slipping away. Their children found doors that had been opened to their fathers were now closing. When some of Chang and sons start to move west um, in Missouri and in Kansas, in official records, people begin to mark them as Chinese, which is really curious, considering they had never been marked thus at home in North Carolina. Chang and Ng died in 1874, within a few hours of each other. They were 62 years old. They were still listed as white on the census. But their obituaries, published in newspapers across the country, showed how much American attitudes toward Chinese had changed over the course of their lifetime. Both were ignorant and had intelligence that scarcely rose above low cunning. Their faces were peculiarly repelling, yellow in hue and closely resembling those of the Chinese cigar sellers of Chatham Street. When they die, the most vile things are written about them. And so by the end of their life, there's just not as much room to maneuver. Kind of this iron cage has descended on the family, and they are no longer able to um, situate themselves in ways that are beneficial to them. When they first arrived in America, Chang and Ng had wanted to be identified as Chinese. But there was no clear place for Chinese immigrants in America's racial hierarchy. By the time they died, there was a very clear place for them. They could only be Chinese. Joe Orser helped us tell that story. He's a professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire and the author of The Lies of Chang and Ng, Siam's Twins in 19th Century America. We've been talking today about Chinese history in the U.S., but now let's head just south of the California border to the large, bustling city of Mexicali, Mexico. If you ask people here about the city's most notable regional cuisine, uh, they won't say street tacos or mole. They'll say Chinese food. Mexicali has something like 200 Chinese restaurants. Why? The answer has a lot to do with United States history and a law passed well over a century ago. Reporter Lisa Morehouse has the story. People have eaten Chinese food in Mexicali, Mexico for over 100 years. Today, one of the oldest and grandest restaurants is called El Dragon. The food's unique to this region, Chinese with some Mexican flavors, explains co-owner George Lim. This new dish, uh, it's uh, arrachera, which is like uh, the best meat for, uh, for tacos. 
beef with asparagus and black bean sauce. While the meat's clearly Mexican. And asparagus uh, could be both Chinese and Mexican, but the sauce, the black bean, that's Chinese. It was mostly Chinese immigrants who first settled Mexicali over a century ago. We'll explain why in just a minute. At that time, Chinese cooks used Mexican ingredients like chilies, jicama, and certain cuts of meat because they were the only things available. Now, Chinese food has such a culinary legacy in Mexicali that it makes better business sense for George Lim to commute south across the border from his home in California every day for work. He brings out another hybrid dish. There's this egg roll that this, uh, actually this cook invented. It's this Chinese egg roll, but he makes it with shrimp, cilantro, and Philadelphia cheese. It seems like it shouldn't be good, but it is. And this is the only place I've ever seen avocado and fried rice. Food like this can be found in establishments all over this region. The restaurants that you see now are the remnant of the Chinese population that used to fill the U.S.-Mexico borderlands in Mexicali and in Baja, California. This is Robert Chow Romero, a professor at UCLA. He teaches in both the Chicano Studies and Asian American Studies departments. Chinese started to go to Mexico after the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed in the United States. Okay, to understand that, we have to go back to the 19th century. Chinese immigrant laborers began arriving in California in the 1840s and 50s for the gold rush. They helped build the transcontinental railroad and establish agriculture and fishing industries in the West. It's kind of a sad history. White workers in California did not like Chinese immigrant laborers. They felt that the Chinese worked for really cheap wages and they couldn't compete. And so there was an organized anti-Chinese movement So in 1882, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, prohibiting any immigration of Chinese laborers. The Chinese were the first ethnic group ever in U.S. history to be singled out and banned from the United States. The Exclusion Act didn't stop immigration. It just redirected it. Tens of thousands of Chinese went to Mexico and eventually got smuggled into the U.S. So the Chinese invented undocumented immigration from Mexico smuggling with coyotes. Guides hired to lead people across the border. And smuggling with false papers and in boats and in trains and all those kinds of things. The infrastructure for that was all uh, invented by, by the Chinese. In fact, today's Border Patrol grew out of what was called the Mounted Guard of Chinese Inspectors. These were men on horseback, then cars and even boats, who monitored the border from Texas to California to keep the Chinese out. Many Chinese immigrants settled in Mexicali, becoming grocers, merchants, and restaurant owners. Others did smuggle across and made lives in the U.S., including Imperial County, California. Mr. G. Hi, I'm Lisa. This history played out over generations in Edmund G.'s family. I meet G at his house in the town of Brawley, California. He's a leader in the Chinese-American community. I'm the president of Imperial Benevolent Association for many, many years. His family's relationship with the U.S. started three generations back. Great-grandpa came over. With a few others from his village in southern China. Then after that, 
they all try to come across to Mexico, special to uh, the Rio Grande River. Sometimes the water is dry, they can walk, uh, do little swimming over to the United States. He's one of them. Unfortunately, one got caught in El Paso. They had to send him back. <laughs> but years later, in the 30s, G's father made it, probably as a paper son, which means he used fake documents to come through San Francisco, finding his way to Imperial County, where he started working at a restaurant. Edmund G. ran a grocery store here for 43 years, and he's co-owned a couple Chinese restaurants in Imperial County. About 15 miles away in the city of El Centro, the Fortune Garden restaurant is packed. The Salcedo family sits in a coveted booth, almost drooling as they wait for their food to arrive. They drive over an hour, a couple times a month, just to eat their favorite dishes. The salt and pepper fish. Uh, it's like red fish. Sort of like a Baja style yeah. fish. But yeah, yeah with the peppers and uh, um, the, the chili peppers and onion and stuff like that. To us, it's like a, a fusion, Mexican ingredients with the Chinese. It's very different than if you go to any other Chinese, Americanized Chinese restaurant. I leave the Salcedo family as they carefully mix Chinese mustard, a little spicy sriracha, and ketchup into a special dipping sauce for barbecue pork. When they, when they order, they don't say barbecue pork. They say canita, canita colorada. This is restaurant owner Janessa Zhao, who came to the U.S. from southern China. Her husband, Carlos, is from Mexicali, Mexico, where he worked in Chinese restaurants. The food doesn't look exactly like what Zhao remembers from back in China. You can see every table, they have lemon. Chinese food, you don't eat lemon, right? And the kitchen looks different, too. Here, the cooks speak to each other in Cantonese, but the waiters speak Spanish and English. One simple snapshot of how history has shaped the people and cuisine in three different countries. Lisa Morehouse is a reporter based in San Francisco. She produced that story through a fellowship at Hedgebrook, a residency for women writers. Vicki Lee helped with reporting and translating. It's time to take another break, but when we get back, we'll discuss Richard Nixon from the streets of Shanghai. He was like the first person who dared to eat a crab. He was so brave to come to China and build relations between the two countries. Chinese people won't forget this. You're listening to Backstory. We'll be back in a minute. This is Backstory. I'm Ed Ayers. I'm Brian Ballow. And I'm Peter Ronoff. Today, we're exploring the long history of U.S.-China relations. On July 3, 1986, President Ronald Reagan gave out 12 medals to outstanding immigrants. This was at a ceremony celebrating the centennial of the Statue of Liberty. Three of those medals went to people of Chinese descent. Architect I.M. Pei, computer scientist An Wang, and astronaut Franklin R. Chang Diaz. Now, we've been hearing a lot today about the negative stereotypes of the Chinese, especially in the 19th century when the images of the yellow peril were widespread. 
But the professionals receiving those awards in 1986 fell into a more recent American stereotype of Chinese and Asians in general, those who excel in fields of science and engineering. They're the immigrants the U.S. wants, the, quote, model minorities. The idea is that people are able to come as immigrants. This is Madeline Shu, a historian at the University of Texas at Austin. And by dint of hard work, of focusing on your education, on focusing on your work and career, you eventually will be able to succeed and attain markings of middle-class success. And so all of these things we associate and we see very visibly among Asian Americans. How did Chinese Americans go from being seen as a threat to democracy to a model minority? The answer actually goes back to the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act we heard about earlier in the show. That law didn't exclude all Chinese. Certain classes of people were exempt. Chief among them were students. In the 1870s, before the Exclusion Act, both countries encouraged Chinese students to study in America. The idea behind students is that you can train them and that you can teach them, and these are the ones who are the most readily uh, acculturable to the United States, the ones best positioned to appreciate the benefits of American civilization. And when you send them back to China, they are also in a position to influence other Chinese to have similarly benign and even favorable views of the United States. Tell me more about the Chinese government's uh, stake in all of this? So from very early on, there is great attention to practical fields. By the 1870s, China, which was a severely declining power, realized that it needed to start learning practical skills, practically technologies from more powerful countries. And in 1872, the Chinese government pioneers a international education program called the Chinese Educational Mission, which ran for about a decade. It sent about 120 young men to study in New England with the hopes uh, that they would then come back to China and serve in the government and help the Chinese government to modernize and to self-strengthen. Many of these young men are instrumental in helping China develop its earliest railroads, telegraphs, mining systems, Chinese students continued attending American universities well into the 20th century. Many of them returned to China, as America's restrictive immigration laws required. But Xu says the idea of the model minority slowly emerged over the decades from Chinese students who stayed in the U.S. For many of them, geopolitics reclassified them. Take the case of architect I.M. Pei, who arrived in 1935 and was later honored by President Reagan. I.M. Pei comes to the United States with every intention eventually of going back to China because he comes from a very elite family. His father is a banker. He goes to University of Pennsylvania, MIT, also Harvard University. What happens to I.M. Pei, though, is that he gets caught up in the Sino-Japanese War, World War II, and then the Chinese Civil War, which turns him from a student into a refugee. And by 1948, it has become clear that China will become communist. And the U.S. government is faced with this question of what to do about these students who, by the old set of regulations, are supposed to go back to China. And at this juncture, the United States realizes 
because of its own very restrictive and impractical immigration laws, which discriminate on the basis of race and national origin, that it needs to make some sort of provision for these very valuable Chinese workers and intellectuals. Right. And I.M. Pei decides to get his citizenship in the United States in 1955 and is able to become very successful across this time period, helping to demonstrate the usefulness of people with high levels of education and certain kinds of work experiences and work capacities. Uh, He also was taken as something of a civil rights symbol. In 1964, he is chosen by Jackie Kennedy to design JFK's Memorial Library. And this was considered a great breakthrough in terms of the integration of Chinese Americans and Asian Americans more generally. In your own uh, personal experience, have you come to know uh, Chinese Americans uh, who feel the kind of pressure that goes with the, quote, model minority stereotype? Oh, all the time. Uh, As a high school student, my physics teacher was disappointed that I didn't excel more in physics, but I really wasn't that interested in physics. So I actually look like a model minority, but I'm not a model minority because my parents' generation, there are already several people with graduate degrees My grandfather's generation, my grandfather was a famous intellectual. And so if you see me as a highly attaining, well-educated professional in the United States, I'm just sort of staying (laughs) even. And of course, it's a little bit tricky because, after all, it's not as terrible a thing to have this expectation that you are smart and do well in school, but it is a problem if you aren't, in fact, doing that well. We also have uh, minority populations of Asian Americans who are not of this kind of background. Well, thank you for joining us on Backstory today. Thank you for having me. Madeline Shu teaches history at the University of Texas, Austin. Her book is called The Good Immigrants, How the Yellow Peril Became the Model Minority. The Chinese Exclusion Act was repealed in 1943. Two decades later, the Hart-Seller Act abolished the immigrant quota system based on national origin. The Hart-Seller Act ushered in a huge wave of immigration, especially from Asian countries. But because the Cold War was in full swing, loosening immigration laws didn't do much to reduce tensions between the U.S. and China. Every once in a while, we like to take questions from our dedicated listeners who write to us on Facebook, Twitter, and our website. Today, we've got a call from Eric all the way from Xiamen in Fujian Province, China. Eric, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you. What do you got for us? In China, there was a big uh, parade commemorating the Japanese surrender in World War II. And so everyone here was watching it on TV. And my wife, Chinese wife, and my mother-in-law were watching the parade. And my wife looks to my Chinese mother-in-law and says, do you know what really happened? Why Japan surrendered? And the mother-in-law says, well, China pushed them back. And my wife looked at her and said, no, you know, Harry S. Truman and uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima and nuclear weapons, etc. And my mother-in-law looked at her and said, 
he's brainwashed you, speaking of me. Um, (laughs) Why did you do that? (laughs) Right. I I have no, I'm sorry. And then, but my wife, I I respect, she looked at my mother-in-law and said, no, uh, the government has brainwashed you. Um, And so I want to ask the history guys, how do you talk to someone when they've already decided what history is? Uh, because I run into that every day with uh, students, colleagues, uh, mm-hmm. just people on the streets, etc. So um, what do we do with that? Well, Eric, this is Ed, and uh, I often tell this story about when I was getting ready to go to graduate school. and I told my mom, who was a fifth grade teacher, that I was going to go study history. And she said, well, what for, honey? We already know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's kind of the way we teach history in all countries mm-hmm. is that we know what happened. It's your job as a child to memorize it and to turn it into multiple choice questions. And so I think that we begin very early in conveying the sense that history is a closed book and it's your job to open it up and memorize what's inside it. So I don't know that uh, it seems to be, I don't know if it's a universal, I don't know if any people encourage their children to question what their elders are telling them about sure. how we got here. But but I wonder if you think it's, is it different in China from what you've seen in the States? Um, yeah, like I, I see your point. I think there is like a mutual... You know, we've we've got it figured out. This is our story and we're moving forward with it. I think in the U.S. we are kind of more we understand when somebody questions history here. It kind of it's shocking. It's surprising. There probably are instances where the Chinese government, for instance, has changed its story about the history of China itself. And I think that working with your wife, for instance, or even just asking your mother-in-law whether there are any examples of that or any occasions uh, that she's aware of, that might provide you with a a bit of an opening to begin a discussion. And, and, you know, the one thing I've learned uh, really on Backstory is that history really is just a discussion. And if you can start Mm -hmm. that discussion rather than lecturing back and forth at each other, I I think you'll be at least to the second cup of tea. Uh, Americans have this advantage, is we have so many competing uh, versions of American history because of the experiences of different groups. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they are always in play, and they're being contested. So uh, you're quite right. I mean, history is a a live thing. And I think what uh, the the common theme, Eric, is that there are assumptions on either side. And Americans like to think we're so sophisticated because we can argue about everything. Sure. Uh, But I don't think we really examine our assumptions. And that's what we see in in your family story about your mother-in-law. She's just not thinking about what's happening. Where are the facts? Well, are we thinking about what America might look like to the larger world? No, I don't think so. Well, we are on backstory, Peter. (laughs) Hey, Eric, thanks very much for the call. Thank you, Eric. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Great talking with you. Bye-bye. If you've got a question for us about an upcoming episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook or our website, BackstoryRadio.org. We're working on shows about the history of disability in America and U.S. memory of the Confederacy. 
you're just joining us, this is Backstory, and today we're unpacking the complicated history of U.S.-China relations. Now, last month's state dinner at the White House was President Xi's first, but it wouldn't have been possible without another first, President Richard Nixon's state visit to China in 1972. Just a year before, the idea of an American president setting foot in communist China would have been unthinkable. The two countries were bitter Cold War foes. But Chinese leader Mao Zedong and President Nixon separately realized that they had a common enemy in the Soviet Union. Because the U.S. didn't recognize the People's Republic of China, the leaders had no obvious way to communicate. Author Nicholas Griffin wrote a book about this quandary. He says Nixon's national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, began by approaching neutral countries. And sure enough, a month later, a handwritten note arrives from China through the Pakistani ambassador and is delivered straight to Nixon and to Kissinger. So he, he's like carrying a briefcase with this note and, you know, just takes it out and says, don't tell anybody about this, but yeah, I, I've, got a, I've got a note for you. It's a handwritten note. It has. It's not on any stationery. And, you know, you have to take the Pakistani ambassador's word that that's actually the hand of Joe right. and Lai, the, the Chinese premier. But so that's how the Americans reply in a sort of similar manner, not on official stationery. These, these notes are traveling through Pakistani diplomatic baggage. You know, they don't get there for a couple of weeks. I mean, it's hard to imagine now, but this thing takes place very, very slowly and, and, and tentatively. So was there one moment in all of this that you'd identify as a real breakthrough? Well, there's sort of one moment where, where it sort of forced the breakthrough. They, they start doing this sort of slow motion dance of like, I'll do this and then we'll see what your signal is. Mm-hmm. And this was all going well back and forth until they made their move that we didn't catch. Uh, what Mao had done was he'd stuck an American journalist called Edgar Snow uh, by his side during one of their great parades. And he thought that was a very obvious signal to America that things were rolling along nicely in this in this flirtation. But of course, Edgar Snow was a very left-wing journalist. And <laughs> Mao had always presumed he must be secretly working for the CIA. But of course, to Kissinger and Nixon, he was this sort of raving lefty uh, who they didn't right, trust at all. Right, so they misread all. the signal. Yeah, so we didn't think of that as, as their signal. So uh-huh. there we are waiting for their signal. They'd made it and we didn't get it. And we sort of lapsed back into silence. You know, Nick, this is beginning to sound like a lot of dances that I went to as a teenager. (laughs) You're probably right. Okay. So signals sent, signals missed. Uh, What's the signal that is unmissable? Well, I think that's that's the question the Chinese ask themselves. How can we come up with something so blindingly obvious? For these dumb Americans. For these dumb Americans that everyone's going to get it. And not just Kissinger and Nixon, but the entire of America is now going to get it. It's going to be that obvious. They decided to choose the support of ping pong. So how did they go about orchestrating that? Or did they orchestrate it? Was it just an accident? What they had done was that there was going to be a world championships of table tennis in Japan. Now, of course, China didn't have diplomatic relations with Japan either. So they very quickly uh, had to approach the Japanese sporting authorities and government and ask if they could be included as a last-minute team. And the idea was to have the Chinese table tennis team approach the American table tennis team, which was the strangest collection of this broad section of America. So it had everything from you know, high school girls 
to uh, a black immigrant from Guyana who worked in the United Nations, to a hippie, Glenn Cowan. He, he, you know, the guy was 19 years old, had sort of long brown hair and wore tie-dye bell-bottom trousers. <laughs> it couldn't have been a greater, greater difference between the two teams. You know, there was the Chinese team who were, were sort of basically lived in, in, in an enclosed sphere in Beijing and all they did was play table tennis and study Mao's thoughts. And, and then here this come the Americans. mixture in the United States. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So there they are in Japan now. It's what, 1970 now? It's 1971. 1971. So what happens there in Japan? Well, the Americans sort of going about their business of they're not a very good table tennis team and they're they're losing, (laughs) you know, very quickly in the world championships as the Chinese who've now returned to the sport are rolling on uh, as they always did. And then there's a very odd incident where Glenn Cowan, the American hippie, misses the team bus and he's sort of hanging back and and he he comes out of a training session and there's a bus waiting there and the people on it wave him on he goes on and who is it it's the chinese team's bus so there he is the, the first american in 20 24 years to be dealing with a chinese delegation and, and what an american to be dealing with of him. all the americans yeah what, what <laughs> it's a 19 year old californian hippie so what did he say far out <laughs> Pretty much, he he sort of made sort of revolutionary overtures, as one would. That, you know, <laughs> you know, there are people who believe in revolution in our country too. This was this is California, nineteen early nineteen seventies. You bet. Right. Uh, and you know, who comes to greet him from the back of the bus? But the greatest table tennis te- player of all time, a man called Chuang Sedong, who is very much working hand in hand, you know, with with his sporting authority and the government, and he gives Cowan this this elaborate present. Now, no one gave anyone presents. At a sporting level, you're only allowed to give tiny pins to one another. So the fact that he gave him this silk screen of mountains was... You which know, he just happened to have on which him. Which he just happened to have on him. So this is a, you know, this is a moment that, that had been highly orchestrated by the Chinese right. to look spontaneous. Right. And sure enough, the American ping pong team was invited immediately to Beijing. On the spot. On the spot. And they left within... They left Japan within 48 hours and landed for this remarkable week uh, that's known as ping-pong diplomacy. Good evening. The bamboo curtain has been cracked by a ping-pong ball. For some time, there have been indications of a potential thaw in the more than two decades of... And were the diplomats the back States in the United States a little worried about this? Did they Were they concerned <laughs> that this was some kind of setup? They were very worried, but they understood, Kissinger and Nixon understood immediately that this this obviously had nothing to do with ping pong and everything to do with geopolitics. Uh-huh. The big worry was, who are these people who are representing America? You know, there were some very odd moments. Cowan the hippie thought, well, surely if it's a communist country, I can pretty much use whatever I want. So he went out one morning at four and just stole a bicycle thinking, you know, every bicycle is a bicycle, right? And suddenly it's he was owned being, by the people. Yeah, he was being sort of followed down the street by sort of a mob of Chinese. Uh, Cowan undoubtedly carried drugs into the into communist China, which really? was a mixture of marijuana and hallucinogens. Mm, interesting. You know, it was a very bizarre time. But the number one thing was that the Chinese weren't going to let anything happen to the Americans. And the idea was to get through this week because what happened, what the brilliance of using something cultural in a circumstance like that is it carried with it and or rather changed 
what the people of the respective countries thought of one another. Right. So if you look at opinion polls at the end of, of 1970, that's still very much against the Red Chinese. They basically hadn't budged. But suddenly, in the spring of 71, the Chinese are humanized uh, through ping pong and their good treatment of the American team. And you suddenly get uh, a majority of Americans who want to invite Red China into the United Nations. And how does this lead to Nixon's famous uh, trip to China in 1972? It all happens very quickly. So you get you get the spring of 71 is when the ping pong team arrive. By July, you have Kissinger going on his secret mission uh, to figure out if the Chinese would like to invite Nixon. Uh, and Nixon Nixon arrives uh, in February the uh, in the next year. So it's really one, two, three. I think from a Chinese point of view, it's fantastic. If you think of any negotiation, the first thing you want to secure is home court advantage. Yes. The Chinese did that with the ping pong team. They did it with the arrival of Kissinger. And then they did it again when Nixon arrived. Do you play ping pong? Uh, I play a little. <laughs> I'm not particularly good. Is there anything about the game itself that you think – lends itself to diplomacy. I understand now uh, that there was this long history of the internationalization of the sport that allowed the Chinese to get involved. But what about the game itself? Is Do you think it's particularly conducive to diplomacy? I think, well, I mean, I'll tell you what the, the, the experts will tell you, that it's actually, it sets off the same part of the brain as chess does, which is uh, your strategy and diplomacy. But the difference is, of course, that the, the ball's coming towards you at 70 miles an hour uh, again and again and again. So, uh, you know, you're, you're, thinking, you're thinking on your feet. Uh, the other big difference is, of course, you, how close you are to your opponent. It's remarkably close. So you can actually read you know, human emotions on, on your opponent's face. So Absolutely. And and that net can look awfully low, especially <laughs> against a good opponent. Especially after a beer or two, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us on Backstory. Thank today. you so much for having me. Nicholas Griffin is the author of Ping Pong Diplomacy, the secret history behind the game that changed the world. Even after Richard Nixon resigned from office in 1974, he took several more trips to China to cement economic ties. We wanted to end the show today in the streets of Shanghai to hear from Chinese citizens who remember Nixon in his first historic visit. We knew about it in the village. It was a big deal. Everyone in the country listened to the radio, the National People's Radio. Back then, we were a closed society. We didn't know about foreigners. If we saw one, it was like seeing an exotic animal. Nixon the person didn't leave much of an impression on Chinese, but his actions affected us greatly. We thought Nixon was a great man for coming to China and allowing the U.S. and China to be able to communicate. I think he is one of America's greatest politicians. He was like the first person who dared to eat a crab. He was so brave to come to China and build relations between the two countries. Chinese people won't forget this. These were the voices of Ching Yi, Yao Jintao, and Wang Rei Shang on the streets of Shanghai. Thanks to reporter and translator Rebecca Canther in Shanghai for that snapshot. 
Sipping Perrier, playing ping pong, moving up the range, y'all. Amen. You know there's nothing wrong with the beat. That's going to do it for us today, but you can join us online. We have even more stories about China and U.S. from our past shows. And while you're there, tell us what you thought about this week's episode. Head to BackstoryRadio.org or send email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. You can also ask questions for our upcoming shows on the history of disability and the legacy of the Confederacy. Find us on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. Backstory is produced by Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Kelly Jones, and Emily Gaddick. Jamal Miller is our engineer. We have help from Melissa Gismondi. Backstory's executive producer is Andrew Wyndham. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities in Charlottesville. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional funding is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. And by History Channel, history made every day. Brian Bellow is professor of history at the University of Virginia. Peter Onuf is professor of history emeritus at UVA and senior research fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is professor of the humanities and president emeritus at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Backstory is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.